I take it by Roy Hoffman. Okay, so we're going to discuss Sukkot on the Mediterranean Sea. The Mishnah says that a sukkah constructed on the deck of a boat is kosher. Okay, it's the first source on the page. The Mishnah Sukkah, Parak Bay's Mishnah Gimel, says it's kosher. Well, okay, why is that uh, even a question? Why would they think it wouldn't be kosher? Well, we're gonna we're gonna see why that it may be a problem. So haosa sukasa brosha galo brosha svina kesherav olam You're allowed to. You, it, it's kosher as a sukkah. You can even go in it on yomtiv. However, the Gemara records a tanitic dispute on this issue. Rabbi Akiva said a sukkah on a boat is valid. Rabbi Rabbi Gamliel said it's invalid, contrary to the plain reading of the, uh, of the Mishnah. Abaye clarified. Where is the machlokis and where is their agreement? So he says there is agreement regarding a sukkah if it cannot withstand ordinary wind gusts then everyone agrees this ain't kosher. And everyone agrees that if it can withstand ordinary wind gusts it is kosher. The problem is what about if it can withstand the wind gusts that are normal on yabasha on dry land but not the ones that exist out at sea on the yam. So then, uh, Rabbi Akiva would say, it's kosher, because on the Yabasha it would have been good, so on the, on the Yam it's also good. Whereas Gamliel says, no, no, if it can't withstand in its own environment, there's no point to it, so it's not kosher. Okay, well, this halachic dispute reflects a sociological difference between Gamliel and Akiva. Gamliel, the patrician, insisted upon relatively sturdy structure uh, whereas Akiva the plebeian recognized the validity of even a flimsy shelter. So, yes, this is like a, a niche machlokis about Sfina, about a boat, about going out to sea, but it's consistent with what we know from their broader uh, worldview in Hilcha Sukkah and beyond. As a, as a temporary structure, isn't it sort of like better having it temporary? The more you solidify it, it seems to lose its essence of a sukkah. Yes, but on the other hand, if it's so flimsy that it's going to collapse, you know, in any and all circumstances, it's hardly anything at all. So it's like a happy medium you have to find where it's not too much of a, a diras keva, but on the other hand, it's a dira, it's something. Okay. Now, the dispute between Gamliel and Akiva was not merely academic. They once spent Sukkot together while sailing on the Mediterranean Sea. Thinking that he could thereby fulfill his obligation, Akiva built a sukkah on the deck of the boat. And shortly thereafter, a gust of wind came and knocked down the structure. And Gamliel mocked him and said, Heichan sukkoscha, Akiva, where is your sukkah now, Akiva? You know, uh, he was uh, trash-talking him to show, hey, I'm right, you're wrong, you were foolish to build a sukkah. Four of the leading sages of Israel were on that journey. Who were they? Rabban Gamliel, Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, and Rabbi Akiva. With the onset of Sukkot, the sages wanted yeah, but to isn't that the because the wind the wind is not uh, like a land wind? It's a, a stronger wind, or it it's, it's have, a strong. It's it's a stronger. It has to wind. be able to withstand the wind. Okay, so Otherwise the machlokes the machlokes between Rabban Gamliel and Akiva is whether or not a sukkah on a boat has to be able to withstand the wind that is commonplace out at sea. Right, the typical sea wind. Gamil says yes, and it's impossible, therefore there's no point to the sukkah. Akiva says it doesn't, therefore it's plausible to make a sukkah. And it only has to withstand the land-based winds. So what was he expecting? He was expecting, you know, 
the sukkah will be up for a little while. I'll do a mitzvah briefly. If it gets knocked down, it gets knocked down. Whereas Gamliel's approach was, this is nuts. Why bother building it? The sukkahs can't last on a boat. Okay. Hmm. Now, so on this journey, you have Gamliel, Yoshua, Allah's ben When sukkah started, they want to do the mitzvah of Dalit Minim. But accessing Dalit Minim, uh, you know, while away from home, is exceedingly difficult. Only Rabban Gamliel was able to buy a lulav. The Sifra and Emor says that he spent an astronomical sum on his lulav, which gets into a whole separate topic about what's considered an appropriate amount of money or a percentage of your assets to sort of squander on the performance of, of a mitzvah asay. There's, there's halachic guidelines about how much you're supposed to spend for those no, Wait purposes. a minute, are they on the boat? They're on the boat. They're on the boat. So, I mean, if you don't bring it in advance... Okay, yeah. so it could be they stopped off at some port here or there, and you know, going to the marketplace in, in Port Saint, whatever, uh, a, a Gamil was able to find the four things that he needed, but they would rip them off uh, because you know they could charge him whatever they wanted. They could gouge him. Is this yeah. the type of story? Because it could be reasonable that we say, you know, this probably happened. No, I'm going to say... tell you that it did happen. I'm I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm quick to say things didn't happen. I'm here to say this stuff all did happen. Right, so. <laughs> Now, to satisfy the technical requirement that a person must own his own lulav, you know, uh, that because of the lachem requirement, you have to own it on Yom Rishon of Sukkis. So what did they do? They did a matana. So what's going to happen? Gamliel is going to give it to Rabbi Yoshua, who's going to give it to Elizabeth Isaiah, who's going to give it to Akiva. And each person in turn will fulfill the mitzvah with a lulav and eswig that they really own on the basis of the matana in the moment when they're taking Okay. Now, rabbinic literature has several other stories involving the four sages on their Mediterranean journey. While at sea, another question came up. Rabban Gamliel needed to take trumas and maestris from his produce in order to be able to eat it. You know, he's not allowed to eat tevel. So he wants to be able to eat something kosher. It's metukan. It's chulun metukanim, rectified produce. So how does he rectify his produce while out at sea? The answer is, he could do so despite being geographically removed from the foodstuffs in question, because he had a solution on account of the identities of his shipmates. Who was a levy among that crowd? Rabbi Yoshua ben Hananya was a levy. So he gave Rabbi Yoshua the Maeser Rishon, and he leased the space it occupied so as Rabbi Yoshua could get, legally affect the acquisition, meaning the Maeser is not on the boat. The Maeser is back at home. How do I transfer ownership to the of the Meiser to Rabbi Yeshua? We're on the boat and the, and the stuff's over there. The answer is Makoma Muskarlo, a Derech Agav. If you rent space, the stuff that's on that space goes along with the rental. Like we do that with, with Mechir Aschamit Pesach time too. The Daf Yomi is on that topic. Yeah. Not yeah. today, but we just did it. Yeah. So uh, now, what about Rabbi Akiva? Rabbi Akiva is the custodian of the charitable funds, he's the Gabai for the tzedakah funds. So, we'll give the, the Maser Shani to Rabbi Akiva as a custodian for the poor people, and the space will be leased, and that's how Derech Agav, it'll go uh, uh, to the right people. And Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah was a Kohen, so Rabbi Yoshua could give Trumas Maser from the Maser to Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah and with, the, with, with, a, with a rental agreement. So here you have, it's a mission of Maser Shani, that the that the, the 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 fact that it was a Kohen, a Levi, and a Gabite Stalker enabled this all to come about. Okay, now the rabbis were traveling from Eretz Yisrael 
to the Italian peninsula. And on one occasion, their boat left the port of Brindisi on Shabbos. Because the rabbis were no longer within the Tchum, which is 2,000 amas from the edge of the, of the town, the question comes about, how much freedom of movement do you have on the deck of the ship once you're out at sea, having left the Tchum? So you tell me, what do you think the answer is? What's the question when you leave the boat? If you leave, if you're on a boat that uh, leaves port on Shabbos, and now you're out of the Tchum, and you're on the deck of that boat, how much wiggle room do you have to move around? Well, you want the, you're 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 more you're up in the air. Number one, you're you're higher than you're you're in a basically you're just a yachid in a sense, right? The Not entire just boat a is your new domain. It's like it's like a floating apartment building. It's... Okay, so all that may may be relevant for issues of but not necessarily for Tchum Shabbos. Once you're beyond the Tchum, you're beyond the Tchum. How far can you move? Forget carrying. How far can you move? So the patricians, Rabban Gamliel, Rabbi Elizabeth Azariah, uh, accustomed to more spacious personal quarters, allowed themselves the entirety of the vessel of the ship. We can walk around the whole deck. The plebeians, Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Akiva, accustomed to more narrow and constricted living spaces, move no further than Dalet Amos. How do you like that? They were stuck Dalet Amos the whole Shabbos, the Gansa Shabbos. That's pretty rough. Were, were, so they, they, allowed, were they allowed to leave on Shabbat in the first place? Uh, the answer is no, but they, they didn't have much of a choice about the banner. If the captain, if the Rav HaChovel pulls up the anchor and you're on the boat and it starts moving, what are you supposed to do? Nothing you can do about it. Yeah, but they okay. boarded before Shabbat. And they're just sitting Correct. on the boat. So they're not doing Correct. anything. So, 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 right. So the, so the truth is they have no achrayas to try to get the Goyesha captain to stop movement on Shabbos. Uh, you know, once they're already on the boat, they'll just be there and it's a, so a Shevi Altasa situation. Okay. Now the sages disembarked at the port of Petuel, Petuoli, which is near Naples, on their way to going to Rome. And the Midrash asserts that even 120 miles away, the sages could hear noise emanating from the great metropolis of Rome. Three out of the four Chachamim began to cry as they contemplated the stark difference between the thriving civilization of pagan Rome and the defeated and devastated Israel in the, in the post-destruction era you know, after the year 70. Who's the only one of the four who did not cry? You have Rabbi one guess. Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva. Akiva, of course. Rabbi Akiva laughed, noting that if God is so kindly disposed to those who violate his will, is he going to be showing favor to the Ose Ritsono, to those who do his will? So this, this story is one long story that appears in uh, uh, disparate rabbinic passages, Mishnah, Tosefta, Gemara, but basically, they left Israel. They were away for Yontif. There was a Sukkah episode. There was a Lulav episode. There's a Trumas and Maishwis episode. There's a Shabbos uh, Tchum episode because they left the port. And they arrive in Italy at Naples and they're hearing in a distance, uh, you know, the, the, the hustle and bustle of Rome. Okay. Now, the sages likely spent a considerable amount of time in Rome because their journey began around Sukkot. And yet they were still in Rome for a subsequent yontif, 
the earliest of which have get, could have been Pesach, which is six months later. It doesn't say it was Pesach, but it could have. Uh, that was the earliest possible one. And this is an incident that's known to us in Gemara in in, in of Beitzah. What happened? They were in Rome, and Rabbi Akiva reassembled a lamp on the night of Yontif. Contrary to the view of Rabban Gamliel, that you're not allowed to reassemble a, 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 a collapsed lamp on Yontif. And Rabbi Akiva politely reminded Rabbi Gamliel that the halacha is Achrei Rabban Lahatos. We follow the majority, and the majority disagrees with Gamliel. So they're no, they're under no obligation to follow him just because of the force of his personality that he was a Nazi or something like that. Okay. Now, so while he really Rome, he gets he catches a lot of flack, Rabban Gamliel. He does. He absolutely does. Yeah. You think he had no greater authority being the Nazi? Well, on certain issues, calendrical issues, he absolutely did. But on other, what we might call pettier halachic issues, Achari Rabbi Blahatot is the operative principle. And if he finds himself in the fringe minority, so be it. Okay. Now, while in Rome, the sages were peppered with questions from Gentiles. Which is not surprising because they were recognized as you know the the, the 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 scholars of the Hebrews of the Jews. So even the Goyim wanted to hear their wisdom. A question of deep theological import, which appears in the Mishnah of Odazara, that Paragdalad Mishnah Zion, was if God is omnipotent and objects to idolatry, then why does he allow it to continue to exist? That God could eliminate idolatry from the world in his omnipotence if this really bothered him that much. So the sages had to respond to this. But what's the answer? So they said, God would not destroy the sun, the moon, and the stars because they're important parts of the divine plan of creation. And he's not going to do that on account of the flawed theological thinking of fools, meaning God created these celestial beings for his purposes, and he wants that purpose not to be frustrated by any other consideration. Let it you know, come to fruition. The fact that a bunch of Mishigayim, some fools, some Naranim, they think that these are gods. So so the real god, the omnipotent Ribbana Shalom, sort of laughs that off and says, ah, I don't care what you think. Um, now, curiously, however, no record exists of the sages having interacted with the Jewish community in Rome. I, uh, when I was researching this topic, I found that very peculiar. But then again, the community in Rome had something of a an adversarial relationship with the the Jewish leadership in Rome. Remember, who is the according to several passages in the Gemara, who was the prominent figure in the Rome Jewish community? Oh, he was a doctor. Yeah. Todos ish Romi, Thaddeus, he, the physician of Rome. He, he brought that sheep. As a corgi. Right, he brought the fake uh, the Pesach and, and, and they yelled at him and, and said, if it wasn't for the fact that you're Thaddeus who, who bribes us, who pays our salary, we would have put you in Cherem. Okay, so there's like a complicated relationship between Chachamim and the, and the community in Rome. So just anyway, a question about the, when you said earlier, when God's response to a vote of it uh, It's not a bad question and it's not a bad answer if God would say that in general. I mean, why? Why not? Why isn't that the answer, generally speaking, for all people? Like, what does he care? So, I, I think it is a good answer. It's a fair question. It's a fair enough question, and the answer is not an unreasonable answer. That the the uh, the plan of the world will continue according to plan, and not be disrupted by silly thinking of silly people. No, but why not extend that to us? I mean, he destroys the country several times because we. Uh, choose to live like the rest of the world? Well, the the answer to that is 
destroy the country doesn't mean destroy the, the, the physical landscape. It means destroy the civilization, which uh, was well, not it's pretty moving stark up to its when potential. God just, what, God just said, like, what do I care what they do? I, mean, I don't care what my dog believes. I mean. Okay, so then why bother having a covenantal people at all? Well, that's sort of the question. All right, that's that, that's that's a question that has has befuddled some of our, our greatest thinkers. And I'll be honest, one of my atheist friends, who's very who's a black hat uh, from a yid, but he's an atheist. Um, he uh, that's one of the things that bothered him. Why should there be any uh, rela- re- relationship between a higher power and a subset of humanity of a covenantal nature? Eh, he rejects it. But and the still, Rambam uh, doesn't ask that. I mean, I, I, someone must ask that. Son, there must be some serious person asking that question. Yeah, there is, but I, I'm no philosopher, so who am I to give an answer? All right. Now, why did they travel to Rome, and when did this journey take place? So it's got a nice bunch of nice halachic stories that we've gone through, but, but when did this happen, and why did it happen? So answer, answering these questions is complicated by the likelihood that there were two different rabbinic missions to Rome in the early Tanaitic period. Several rabbinic texts speak of a mission to Rome by Gamliel, Yoshua, and Eliezer ben Hyrcanus. Okay, now the other one was not Eliezer ben Hyrcanus, but rather Eliezer ben Uzziah and Akiva. So the varying compositions of these groupings make sense in light of rabbinic history. The earlier trip would have been before Rabbi Eliezer was put into Cherem. Remember, he was put into Cherem over the Tanadach Nai episode, and they wouldn't have taken him on the journey once he was uh, ousted from the from the, from the, you know, the, the, the his group of colleagues. Um, and so that that episode before Eliezer was was put in Cherem was also before Lazar ben Azariah was elevated to the rank of Konasi. So it makes perfect sense that Elazar ben Azariah, the younger fellow who gets appointed to the Nisiyut in, the, in, the, in the, the, the bad episode with Gamliel, is part of the later group. And Eliezer ben Hercules is part of the earlier group. Okay. And also Akiva is part of the later group because his scholarship was recognized later in life. He may have been just as old as some of the other, the other fellows, but he was not a Chacham until, you know, sometime uh, deep into his, his, his life. So um, when does this put this? Or more or less what decades? In the 90s, in the, in the late 90s. So it can be inferred from a Midrashic passage that the rabbis went to Rome on the trip uh, in order to save the Jewish people from some kind of destruction, devastation, uh, anti-Semitic persecution. The Midrash records how the Roman Senate decreed that within 30 days every Jew in the world be killed. So we're talking about uh, Dvarim Rabbah, Perak Bey's, uh, 24. So the uh, the Senate decreed all the Jews are going to die. A God-fearing senator revealed the plot to Rabban Gamliel. Now, the fact that there was a God-fearing senator is not surprising. There were Yirei Shamayim, there were so-called God-fearers who accepted certain Jewish beliefs without converting to Judaism among the high-ranking officials of Rome. This was a, a fairly common phenomenon, which also was precipitated some anti-Semitism uh, as well. Um, so the rabbis were petrified, but the God-fearing Gentile told them, don't worry, God will surely spare you. After 25 days, no salvation was on the horizon. So the God-fearer's wife encouraged him to suck the poison of his senatorial signet ring, because upon the death of a senator, the government shut down for 30 days, and the decree against the Jews would then lapse and wouldn't come to fruition. So the senator did as he was told by his wife. The rabbis went to make a shiva call to the wife of this senator, 
and they they were saddened by the fact that he died without having converted to Judaism, that he wasn't tachas kanfei hashchina when when he met his end. So the widow said, "No, no, you're wrong. He was tachas kanfei hashchina." She took out a box, inside the box there was an orla, a foreskin, and a bunch of bloodied rags, a bunch of bandages, indicating that what that he had circumcised himself before taking his own life heroically. So here, the, the, the goy didn't die a goy, he died a yid. And he died for the cause. Okay, very nice. Now, a similar story appear about uh, a late conversion to Judaism uh, exists, though without reference to a rabbinic delegation to Rome. In this story, the emperor suggested that Jews are a thorn in the side of the Roman Empire and want to be an island. One of the royal counselors, Ketia Bar Shalom, convincingly argued that it was neither possible nor in the emperor's best interests to eradicate the Jews. Um, but for having bested the emperor in an argument, Ketia was sentenced to death. In other words, Ketia was right, but the, the emperor doesn't like being, being one-upped in an intellectual battle. So since Ketia beat, it, beat, you know, beat the emperor, he's got to die. Uh, so shortly before his execution, he was able to chop off his foreskin. And the Gemara in Avodah Zarah, Dafyudam and Beis, says this is the classic example of a person whose kone es olamo besha achas. He acquires his eternal life in one fleeting moment. Just like, who's, who's the other one we, we say about that? The, the executioner that jumps of, into the flames. Uh, of yeah, Hanania but... ben Trajan, who jumps into the flames, right. Okay. Now, scholars have attempted to connect all these legends with events that occurred in the year 95 towards the end of Domitian's reign as emperor. Domitian was, was an irresponsible steward of the imperial treasury. You know, he was like a, like a drunken sailor, you know, a, a, a you know, progressive Democrat. Um, you know, he was spending too much money. Or maybe even George Bush. He also spent too much money. So um, to cover his budgetary losses, he rigorously collected the Fiscus Judaicus. What's the Fiscus Judaicus? It's the tax. The tax on the Jews, which was a, a successor to the to the to Machzitz Hashekel. Machzitz Hashekel goes to the Beis Hamikdash. Fiscus Judaicus was taken by the Flavians and brought into the imperial treasury. So, if you if you want to crack down on any and all people with even the slightest connection to Judaism or Jewish identity, you'll put some shekels in the pocket of the empire. So the impost was levied on people who lived as Jews without publicly acknowledging their faith as well as on those who attempted to conceal their ethnic origins. In other words, if you were a quasi-Jew by ethnicity and quiet about it, or a quasi-Jew by religious practice and belief and quiet about it, they ferreted you out and made you pay. Suetonius recalled being present in his youth uh, when a man of 90 years old was examined before the procurator in a very crowded court to see whether he was circumcised. Now, this is happening in the year, you know, 95, uh, 19 centuries ago, but it, it's reminiscent of, you know, 1941, 42, 43, people trying to pass as Gentiles in Poland or France or Germany and getting their pants pulled down to see if they had bris and being killed if they did. Now, Domitian exhibited anti-Jewish prejudice in part because Judaism, with its strict monotheism, denied the divinity of the emperor. And as the emperor, he wanted everybody to recognize his divinity. Domitian feared the growing influence of Judaism and Christianity upon the upper classes in Rome. He initiated a, a vicious campaign in which delators, the malshinim, 
would denounce Jews, converts to Judaism, and sympathizers with Judaism. So anyone who's a Yehudi or even a Mityahadim. While Domitian was happy to profit from the existence of a large Jewish community whose assets he could seize, he was unhappy when prominent individuals, including those close to the throne, became imbued with a Judaic spirit. In other words, yeah, there's a Jewish community, we're going to tax them as much as we can tax them, but we don't want prominent VIPs of pagan Rome getting too cozy with Judaism. Like the problem was, that's exactly what happened. Flavius Clemens and Flavia Domitilla were the biological parents of Domitian's designated heirs. Remember, Domitian didn't have biological children. Either he was gay or he was infertile, whatever it is, he didn't have any real kids. He but Roman designated... emperors came from all over the empire. I mean, why would they really care? What's the downside if a lot of Romans were Jewish at the same time? I mean, I think the answer is that there were those who felt that pagan Roman paganism tied everything together and that uh, the tolerant paganism of the widespread empire allowed for people to get along despite ethnic and racial differences but that uh, uh, an intolerant monotheism, which says mm -hmm. I'm right and you're necessarily wrong, is, is upsetting the apple cart. You know, you, so it, that's it, reasonable it, then. Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, okay. people say that to this day. Uh, yeah, sure. Now, Clemens was Vespasian's nephew, while Domitilla was Vespasian's granddaughter. Clemens had served as consul from January to April of 95. The married couple drifted into Jewish ways. And they were prosecuted on charges of atheism. Now, if you're drifting into Jewish ways, why would you be charged with atheism? Because it's Jews an invisible in general God. were accused of atheism. Because right. we don't have a, an incorporeal God is seen as not a God at all. So the Jews who believe in the Luft are, are atheists in the eyes of Rome. Uh, well, Clemens was executed and Domitilla was exiled to the, to the island of Pandateria in the Tyrian Sea. So they killed the guy, they, they sent the girl packing to the middle of nowhere, so be it. Okay, now it is possible that the rabbis of Eretz Yisrael went uh, to Rome in order to influence the regime to moderate its aggressively anti-Jewish policies. But to whom in pagan Rome could the Jews turn to for help? Meaning that we're sending the best rabbis of Eretz Yisrael away on Yontif. Okay, they're missing Yontif and Eretz Yisrael in order to do this, this, this mission for the sake of Klal Yisrael, they're going to the, the belly of the beast, the lion's den, but who are they going to turn to for help? So there's a story about how Rabban Gamliel, Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, and Rabbi Akiva had different opinions about meeting with their colleague, the philosopher. Rabbi Yoshua favored paying him a visit, Rabbi Yoshua ever the left-winger, Gamliel at first refused, but eventually relented. So some scholars claim, who was the philosoph? You get one guess? Josephus. Some say that, that the philosoph was none other than Josephus Flavius, the historian, and only Jew in Rome with close ties to the Flavian dynasty. Rabban Gamliel's reluctance to have any association with Josephus can be attributed to the an animosity between Josephus on the one hand, and Gamliel's father, Shimon ben Gamliel I, dating back to the Great Revolt in 66. Remember, Josephus well, was died. given a responsibility to defend Yotvata. And what did he do? 
He, surrendered. he threw in the towel. He was a Benedict Arnold. So, uh, uh, so that's why the Gamlielian dynasty and the, and, and the Josephine crowd would not like each other very much. Okay. Now, whether or not the sages of Eretz Yisrael were ever able to obtain an audience with a high-ranking Roman official in the hopes of softening the anti-Jewish policies, if that was even their intended goal, the hated policies were indeed moderated shortly after the death of Domitian. He was assassinated on September 18, 96, in a palace conspiracy. The regicide was done by Domitilla's steward, Stephanus. So Domitilla, who had been sent packing to an island uh, uh, refuge, and, and her husband had been killed, so her butler killed the emperor. Domitian was succeeded by Nerva, who minted coins with the expression, Fisci Judaici Calumnia Sublati, meaning the abolition of malicious prosecution in connection with the Jewish tax. Basically, we'll still collect the Jewish tax, but we're not going to be nasty about it and pull people's pants down in public to see if they have bris. So there was a relaxation of the relationship between the Am Yisrael and the Roman government. It is unlikely that four leading rabbis would have left Eretz Yisrael and sailed to Italy unless they believed they were performing a critical task for Am Yisrael. Yet their diplomatic activities cannot be known with any degree of certainty uh, based on the surviving literature. Instead, we're left with the record of halachic disputes and stories about mitzvah observance in some no optimal outside, conditions. There's no outside uh, source to corroborate this. Anyway. No, none, none whatsoever. So, so all we're left with is halachic disputes and stories about mitzvah observance under less than optimal conditions. But I would argue, and this is Hoffman's Chiddush here, it's not my chiddush, but my, my spiel here today is, such is the nature of Judaism. Tales of woe and salvation blend into one another, the details of each either being largely forgotten or not reliably recovered historically. What does survive, and what we study intensively, is the law, the halakha, in all of its glorious details. And we observe the mitzvot even under challenging conditions, for that's the ritzon Hashem, what God wants of us. So, all these tales about the rabbinic mission to Rome, I like it because I'm you know, interested in history, uh, but I will acknowledge much of it is missing. I can't really put together the pieces exactly and know that it's, it's accurate. All I have left are the things that, in the eyes of Chazal, were important, like how to take Truma and Meiser when you're far away from your produce, or how to observe Sukkah when you're on a boat. Or how to observe Lulav and Eswig when it costs $1,000 a piece because you're away from home. These are things that the sages felt were worth studying and preserving stories about. Uh, not, you know, the, the nitty-gritty of their diplomatic approaches towards the Roman consuls. But yet they so, went into great detail to describe these uh, journeys. And it's been, you know, I mean, they did. Others, others did. Others chose to... To so, record but, but them, again, hundreds mo- of years most, after the fact. Mo- most of the, the stories are recorded in connection with Maaseb Rabbi so-and-so, and then some halakhic factor that was in play. Very little of it is just history-telling for the sake of history-telling. When you do have stuff that's non-halakhic, it's in the realm of theology, like the questions they were asked of, you know, why doesn't God destroy Avodah Zarah? So everything has either halachic uh, uh, significance or hashkafic significance. So these stories would be um, um, halachic uh, 
Midrash hal- halacha. What do you what do you call what's the uh, what's the word? So most most of the the content appears in Midrash Agada. However, some of it appears in the Sifra and the Sifrei, which is Midrash Halacha. But remember, there's no real sharp divide between Midrash Agada and Midrash Halacha. Uh, there's plenty of Agad, uh, uh, Agadic storytelling in Midrash Halacha. And there's occasionally halakhically significant material in the Midrash Agada. So, yes, we call them one versus the other, but that's for you know uh, classification purposes only. It's not an absolute thing. Well, you could say for pedagogic purposes... Describing it in the story context um, allows one to study the halachic topic. It's an aside, so to speak, that they're on the boat to Rome. I mean, correct, <laughs> correct. And, and by the way, there among the the, the 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 scholars who write about this stuff, there's a thinking that the preservation of maasim of incidents with halachic import was treasured by the later Tanoim and Amoraim precisely because it was an aid in uh, remembering this stuff, that dry legal details are tough to remember, but episodes are much easier to remember. (laughs) All right. Any other questions? So in general, though, I've asked you the uh, historical questions in the past. Um... And I guess the answer, based on this, is it doesn't necessarily matter whether it's true or not. I mean, it could be, as our bird so, story in the <laughs> island. I mean, like, like why not just say, fine, maybe it happened? Like, what difference so for does it the, make? For the, for the most part, uh, it doesn't really matter whether the tales in the Agadah about sages of the Tanitic period really happened. Because uh, what does it matter one way or the other? especially if it's not going to affect our behavior. What, in my view, we look, we look to, to, to the stories and try to find patterns and to see if we can uh, discern within the, the stories a kernel of serious events, real events. The, the, the rabbinic trip to Rome, it's almost impossible to deny that it actually happened. Because there are too many stories and too many details and specific personalities, and we can connect it to events, you know, um, in the in the broader scheme of things in, in Roman history. Even if no Roman historian writes about seeing a rabbi in Rome, I don't need that. That that would be the kind of corroboration I'm not expecting. It would be great if we had it, but we don't have it. So this this today's genre, yeah, th- these sorts of things did happen. Like for example. Rabbi Elazar um, Rabbiosi, who went to Rome and saw the parochas and saw the menorah. Did that happen? I think it did. Why? Because there's no reason to make up a story about a specific Tana seeing specific things and coming back and reporting uh, some, some minor details. Whereas other stories are more much more fanciful in, in, in uh, invoking supernatural occurrences, miraculous occurrences, that I'm you know, a little hesitant to... Uh, and then how do we relate this topic to how to relate this topic to Tanakh in general? Um, stories are brashit. I mean, some take them literally, some don't. I mean, is there sort of a? The answer is that a good Jew, a good Jew, will have a greater willingness to accept the veracity of fanciful things the older that it is. The more recent it is, the more skeptical we're entitled to be. 
There was no miracle yesterday or the day before. But a thousand years ago, hey, it's a thousand years. You know, anything could happen back then. So we, we have to have a certain openness to to the, the miraculous, to the fanciful, what, if we retroject it to the ancient past. Now, the, of course, the total skeptic will say, you know, no, if, it, if, it, if there were no miracles yesterday, there were no miracles ever. But I'm, I try to be a good Jew. And 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 the Bible is, is you know, Tanakh l'chud v'sifrut chazal l'chud. Each one in its own domain. Okay. Alex, you had, a, you had a question there? It's just about, also, you said about whether it's true. We have so much story, many stories about Rabbi Yehuda and Antigonus. You know, so so Rabbi Yehuda and Antigonus, the, the story, the deal with that is we suspect that the Antigonus uh, of Rebbe's time, if it's referring to an actual Caesar, was Caracalla, who was the Caesar from 12, 12 to 12, uh, 1211 to 1219. Rebbe died around 1219, and Caracalla gave citizenship to the, to, the, to the people of the empire in 212. And there is pretty strong evidence to suggest that he visited Eretz Yisrael during his, during his reign. So it, it is possible that Rabbi Huda Hanasi, in, in, in real historical terms, actually had an encounter with a Roman emperor. It, it, it is quite possible. However, the idea that, that Rebbe was on intimate terms, close terms with some high-ranking official, if that is to be taken seriously, then it could not have been the emperor. It may have been the local governor or some you know prominent figure in the eastern part of the empire whom he would have interacted with on an occasional basis. That is also just as, as possible. The third uh, explanation is these are all just made up. Uh, uh, and there was no uh, 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 you know, Antoninus. Uh, it's just a sort of a fictitious name based upon the names of various emperors and Rebbe. You know, they, they told stories. I don't like that. I like the idea, the middle ground position, that he had a pretty close relationship with some high-ranking official, and they discussed philosophical matters. Yeah, they were connected by a tunnel. No, that already we don't have to, you know, we don't have to take too too seriously. But the idea that Rebbe, as the patriarch of the Jews, would have been in regular communication with a high-ranking official, and that they would have speak about not only uh, political matters but also philosophical matters or theological matters, doesn't bother me in the least. Uh-huh. Why not? I mean, I talk to Goyim all the time. I talk to the pastor down the block. We we discuss philosophy. All right, gentlemen. Have yourselves a, a good week. A Shana Tova Matuka. We'll see yeah. each other on the flip side. All right. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.